In this episode, we are going to learn about the technical foundations of IoT, focusing mainly on the protocols. We discuss protocols such as CoAP and AMQP. Then we go on a lengthy discussion of MQTT and the Spark Black B specification. And then finally, we discuss the backend IoT solution design. My guest on this podcast is Dominic Obermeyer. Dominic is the co-founder and CTO of IFMQ, which is a company that provides an MQTT broker and a client-based messaging platform to over 130 customers, including many Fortune 500 companies for mission-critical use cases like connected cars, logistics, Industry 4.0, and connected IoT products. Dominic is the co-author of the book, The Technical Foundations of IoT, and he's a technical expert on IoT protocols, MQTT, Sparkplug, and highly scalable cloud software. As a member of the OSIS Technical Committee, he has specified MQTT version 3.1.1 and MQTT version 5, and he's also involved in the standardization of Sparkplug. Welcome to the fourth generation podcast here on Industry40.tv which is a series of weekly interviews designed to help you learn industrial IoT from some of the world's leading practitioners. So make sure to subscribe and click on the notification bell to make sure that you don't miss any of the interviews. If you find this conversation interesting, please review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Kutsai Manditereza. Now, here's my interview with Dominic. So, Dominic, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I would like to welcome you to the show today. Thank you, Kutsa. It's uh, uh, for having me. It's really great to be on the show. Great stuff. So, really, today uh, I want to uh, talk to you about the, the technical foundations of, of uh, IoT, uh, focusing mainly on the connectivity and the, and the protocols. So now, uh, basically, with an IoT uh, setup, uh, the goal really is, is to collect data and send it to some form of a backend application. So that, that means that there has to be some sort of uh, a connectivity to get the data across. Uh, what connectivity options, IoT connectivity architectures are available, and uh, how should uh, companies go about uh, choosing one over the other? Yes, it's a, it's a very good question, and, and this, this is highly dependent on the use case, but there are really a few different options you can take. So, so for example, if you're more on the edge side, um, edge networks, um, so these mesh networks are something you see a lot. Um, but if, if you go to cloud connectivity, uh, you actually see things uh, like um, um, mobile, mobile networks. So this is very popular today, especially if you have use cases like connected car. The main connectivity you see um, for cloud connectivity is about mobile networks. Um, but sometimes you also see wired networks. Um, this is uh, but usually not that much, especially not for moving IoT devices. And there's really, really a lot of in between. Um, if you, let's say, go down to the mesh network level, so you have um, some, some uh, specialized protocols there, which um, are also used. But usually you also have a gateway. So um, especially on the edge, you usually have a gateway in order to provide the cloud connectivity and then translate, for example, to a mesh network um, or some other architecture you have locally. Oh, okay. Awesome. So, so ultimately, all this information gets uh, sent as byte streams through a process uh, that is called uh, information encoding. So maybe can you highlight a few uh, information encoding mechanisms that are available as far as IoT is concerned. 
Yeah, sure, sure. And this is a it's a great topic, and uh, because um, encoding of of data is uh, super critical, and um, yeah, this is this really also happens on multiple levels. But as I say, usually it's pretty hard for for humans to consume a byte stream. Also for other, um, let's say, machines, it's pretty hard to consume a byte stream if you don't know how to interpret what you what you're reading, right? So um, you need to make sure that the sender and the the receiver actually understand um, the data. So there's different encodings on on different levels. So, but if you let's say start on the application level, um, there are a lot of popular encodings uh, today, uh, mainly coming from the internet um, technologies, which is a lot is, for example, JSON, you have XML, which is um, nowadays not that popular anymore. Uh, you have things like Google protocol buffers, which are very, very efficient um, on the wire. Um, and also things like a message pack, which are also built for very efficient encoding. And this really depends also. And if you go, go down the stack, um, actually it also depends on what kind of communi communication protocol you're using. So, uh, for example, um, if you're using um, MQTT uh, as a communication protocol, you have uh, different options for encoding, while other protocols might be um, yeah, more opinionated what kind of data they can carry. Uh, so this, this really depends. But I think um, this is very critical to, to think about the encoding. Um, but usually, if you uh, take care about the application-level protocol, um, this, this would be, I would say, a more important question. Um, because very often when you decide on the application level protocol, the options you have for the encoding of the data um, is usually dictated by that. Oh, okay. Awesome. So you, you've touched a bit there on, uh, on IoT protocols. So maybe let's, let's uh, take a deep dive into the uh, IoT protocols. So we've got like different uh, uh, types of protocols or like you've got your MQTT, your QAP. So one yeah. of the questions that I get asked a lot is, um, what's the difference between these protocols? So maybe can you give us a, a brief a breakdown of each of these uh, famous protocols and then maybe highlighting the disadvantages yeah. of, of, of each? Yeah, sure, sure. And, and this, is a, this is a very broad topic and, and I think a very important topic. So, um, because all of the protocols I will mention um, now, all of them basically solve a specific problem very well. And I, I think it's important to understand when to apply which technology, um, because sometimes you can interchange these technologies I will mention. Sometimes it's really, um, they're not that interchangeable because they solve different problems um, with uh, yeah, different approaches. Um, let's, for example, uh, start with a, a protocol that is um, very, also very popular, especially more on the edge side. This is CoAP. It's a constraint application protocol. This is a protocol um, based on UDP. So, and it was really built for constraint devices. And, and actually, uh, if people are familiar with HTTP as a technology, uh, you usually know from the web, which is a request response protocol. And CoAP is pretty, pretty similar from the idea. So um, it uses a RESTful approach, which means um, you have these, these verbs similar with HTTP, where you have a, a get, a post, a put, a delete, and so on. And, and, and basically the idea was, okay, what if we would have something like HTTP, but for machines? So very, very efficient. And so, so Co-op was born. Co-op is um, very, very lightweight. It follows um, 
a client server model. So you actually have a server and you have a client requesting data and you have this uh, request response model. This means as a client, you go to the server, ask for information, and then you receive the data. And what is so interesting about co-op is that co that in the IoT context, let's say of a sensor, usually the sensor is the server for the data while somebody receives that. So, so you have a very lightweight server on the sensor, and then you have somebody asking the sensor for data, and then you receive that. So you have this, this, um, polling, pro uh, this polling protocol. Um, but also what is great about co-op, it also adds uh, for very lightweight sensors, also this observe um, mechanism, which allows you to basically subscribe to data and, and tell the sensor, hey, sensor, if something changes, please notify me so I don't need to poll you all the time. So this is really great because um, uh, this solves the shortcoming of many of these poll rec um, response protocols where you poll all the time without data updates and co-op has this built in. It's, Co-op is pretty popular. So for example, um, it, it got a lot of press when IKEA started to um, use it in their smart home um, things they sell. And yeah, it's, it has a great community. Co-op is really great if you have also technologies like Zigbee and so on. So really, if you cannot use TCP IP, basically. So if you need to use UDP and if you need something very, very lightweight and also preferably if you're local. So co-op is um, usually not used over internet communication. Theoretically, you could do that, this, but um, I've not seen a lot of deployments doing that. Also, um, theoretically, you could also bind co-op over SMS. There are specifications for that. So you don't even need, need to use UDP. You could even carry it over SMS. So basically over the, the mobile network. But this is also something that is theoretically possible, but I have not seen this yet. Um, Co-op is also usually used if you need to translate the web, so HTTP to machines. So because co-op has this um, conversion mechanism. So this is co-op. Um, so really great, really small, really tiny, um, but usually more of a niche protocol. But if you if you have need something very tiny, co-op is awesome. Um, then another protocol that um, was used a lot uh, also for IoT, which isn't very popular nowadays for IoT, is AMQP. AMQP is um, a protocol that is very popular for server backend communication. <clears throat> so for example, if uh, you have some, some server messaging, some microservices um, in the cloud communicating with each other, um, sometimes you see AMQP here. And this is a very modular protocol, which is really nice. So um, it, it has a lot of uh, complex, um, let's say, um, approaches, which make it very modular and you can do a lot. And you basically can, can build your, your, let's say, protocol stack with AMQP um, because it's so modular. <clears throat> but the modularity comes with complexity. And also it's, uh, compared to other protocols, pretty heavyweight on the wire. Mm. So. I personally feel it's um, a very suitable protocol for messaging in the backend, but for IoT communication, it's not very popular, not very widely used, but there are deployments out there who, who use it and are very successful with that. So I think this, this really depends, but from a popularity perspective, this is really one of the less popular protocols. Um, but if you, let's say, go to uh, Microsoft, for example, Microsoft heavily supports that, while other cloud vendors, for example, don't really support it. So then there are some, some protocols 
<clears throat> people so maybe, know. So maybe before yes, you move right. on to 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 the other ones, uh, what sort of communication module does uh, AMQP use? Is it is it a pub sub or or is it a request response kind of? communication oh, yeah a good good question so um actually amqp uh, is very modular so basically it defines um a, a sender and a receiver and you can build pubs up on top of it but it's not pubs up by default you can build pubs up with it but uh, but you can also build a request response with it and this makes it a bit more complicated because um, it allows for multiple paradigms to be implemented. But this also heavily depends on your AMQP uh, broker software you're using. So this really depends. Usually um, AMQP is used with PubSub, but you can also do peer-to-peer -peer communication. Okay. Interesting. So another protocol, um, which is now nowadays, it's not that popular anymore, but it was um, in the 2000s, it was a very popular protocol is XMPP. And XMPP is um, yeah, a protocol designed for chat. So it's an XML-based protocol. So it's pretty heavyweight. It's text-based. <clears throat> and um, it was used a lot, for example, if uh, people remember Google Chat, which was discontinuous, I think, 10 years <laughs> around or so. Yeah. Um, it heavily used that. And a lot of these chat protocols use, use it. And But to, also today... Um, it's still heavily in use um, by some of the, the um, modern chat applications. For IoT, people tried to, to make it a fit for IoT, um, but in the end, it was just too heavyweight. Um, also from a scalability standpoint, uh, it was sometimes very hard to scale, so it's not used that much. But um, when talking about IoT protocols, especially the early days where it was undecided what the popular protocols would be, which was like 2000. 12 to 2015 around where these, these uh, protocol wars um, happened where people were unsure what communication protocol for internet communication will be used for machines. Um, XMPP was a strong contender, but nowadays um, you don't see a lot of XMPP anymore. And now nowadays the most popular protocol you will find for IoT communication is MQTT which um, is a protocol was developed 1999. So it's uh, for internet standards, pretty old actually, um, uh, by uh, Arlen Nipper and by Dr. Andy Stanford-Clark. And they basically built it for uh, oil pipeline uh, monitoring and, and acting. And so uh, they, they used it here um, for, and they basically used it with um, satellite communication. So the idea was, okay, let's build the most um, minimal protocol in order to, to save as mo the most bandwidth and still be very powerful and have um, a published subscribe system that, is, that can be basically endlessly scalable. This was the main idea. Um, was a successful project back then, uh, but for more than 10 years, uh, it basically um, was forgotten or not a lot of people used it until in 2010, um, IBM decided to make a royalty-free license, which basically means any developer in the world could implement the MQTT standard, implement MQTT clients, MQTT brokers, uh, basically without getting sued. Um, and then in 2014, Oasis um, released the MQTT 3.1.1 standard, which is now an official standard. And uh, based on that, I mean, the usage of MQT is exponential. So um, basically, 
every cloud connectivity you will see nowadays uh, will at least support MQTT if it's not a primary uh, communication um, approach. So MQTT, but the question is why is MQTT so popular? And and I think for the reason is because MQTT is that simple. It's one of the most simple protocols you can use on the client side. Uh, while on the broker side, um, this is the, the broker is the, the server um, uh, used for sending data around in MQTT uh, is pretty complex actually. So the, the idea was, okay, devices should be, uh, should be constrained or are usually constrained, have, don't have a lot of computing power, don't have a lot of memory. And we want to make it as simple as possible for the developer to integrate into an MQTT system. And so what MQTT actually is, it's a decoupled system where you have uh, multiple clients and you have a broker um, in the middle of the communication and all devices are decoupled. So they don't know each other, but what happens is um, each device knows the broker and they send data um, or subscribe to data on the broker. And so you get a very, very scalable system um, and you get a minimal system because this uses is a published subscribe model you have, which means uh, it's minimal on the bandwidth because only data that is required to be sent to specific clients will be sent to specific clients. And uh, yes, as of today, uh, MQTT 3.1.1 is still the standard used by a lot of people. But in 2018, um, um, actually, Oasis created um, a new standard, and, and I also help with that, with the specification, this is MQTT5, which is the newest generation. And usually every new MQTT project you see nowadays is using MQTT5 because there's so many advantages, and it's by far the most sophisticated uh, protocol you will see for IoT, and, um, and which is interesting. It started basically uh, for a SCADA use case, then it got popular as an IoT protocol, but now with uh, Sparkplug, which um, which is um, we, we can also discuss later on, is it's now getting back to to the SCADA systems and to the manufacturing floor again. So uh, pretty interesting to see it going uh, in full circle. Uh, that's actually a, an intriguing fact to say that it actually it was initially invented for SCADA and then it got it, it gained popularity outside of uh, the industrial sector, but now it has yeah. to come back. And, 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 and it coming back into the industrial sector now is a challenge because of things like interoperability, which then brings the, 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 the concept of, of spark plug. So maybe for the, for the benefit of the audience, can you explain to us what, what is the intention, really the original intention yeah. with spark plug B? Sure. So um, one thing which I didn't mention why MQT get, got so popular is because it doesn't dictate how data should be structured. <clears throat> and this really opened a lot of new use cases, which you would never believe uh, um, you could use. For example, MQTT is the default for connected car. So um, in virtually every car manufacturer in the world, you will see um, MQTT connectivity, which is not an industrial use case at all. Why? Because it's on the ones it's so simple, it solves all the problems with connectivity. Um, and you can also build your own data models inside it because it doesn't care. You can, MQTT can carry uh, images, it can carry text, it can carry any data you want. But here's the problem. If you go into an industrial setting, this is exactly what you do not want. What you do want 
is to have interoperability, which means you need to decide on a common language um, and also on a common communication pattern so every participant can understand each other. While for the use cases I just mentioned, like connected car, this is a closed ecosystem. And so um, while there are um, other st standards like OPC UA, which are wildly popular um, in industrial settings, um, still there is an, um, an appetite for more, let's say, for a bit more lightweight protocols or, or let's say more lightweight approaches to also um, bring together o the OT and IT world. And this is really where, where why Sparkplug was invented. And actually the person who initially came up with Sparkplug was also Arl Nipper, who invented MQTT back then. So basically this is um, yeah, directly from the creator of MQTT. And, and it's now an open standard, standardized at the Eclipse Foundation. So Sparkplug um, solves uh, a few problems. On the one side, it solves uh, the data format. So um, because Sparkplug promises in industrial Internet of Things plug and play interoperability, there are multiple challenges it needs to tackle. On the one side, interoperability on the data side. Um, then you also need to make sure that to um, define a specific topic namespace. Because in MQTT, you have decoupled devices, uh, but you somehow still need, need them to understand and, and to help them who is also there, what kind of, of data is there. And so you have a topic namespace with Sparkplug. Um, and then you also have defined behavior. So um, for, for example, a, a huge problem a lot of companies um, currently face is that with the digitization and the modernizations of, of the global manufacturing infrastructure, um, sometimes there is there's a problem because on the one side you have you have you need cloud connectivity, especially if you have multiple factories you wanna um, interconnect, for example. So you need basically you need to um, to interconnect these these factories and still make sure um, all these devices underst understand each other, and all these devices um, um, basically can auto discover who who is also there and also have a specific state. Uh, because poll response protocols is something you see a lot. Also, OPC UA is, um, I mean, there is a, a complex topic now, but basically most protocols you see on the factory floor are poll response. And Sparkplug says, no, let's stop that. Sparkplug says, let's do report by exception. This means only if a tag value changes, we want to publish the data. Why? Because if we have a global infrastructure with, let's say, uh, 10,000 tags or even uh, 50,000 tags, if you update data all the time, which you don't need to, your scalar system might get overwhelmed. And, and from a bandwidth perspective, this doesn't make sense. And from a scalability perspective. And there are some companies like Chevron who, had, um, who talk about publicly what a great success they had with modernizing their infrastructure, the global, with uh, Sparkplug. Because there are exactly these problems. And so to wrap this up, um, Sparkplug is, is this plug and play interoperability. It defines um, a, a Sparkplug be a protocol buffer um, encoding for messages. It defines a topic namespace, it defines behavior, and it defines also um, uh, edge of network nodes, which allow existing infrastructure like OPC UI infrastructure um, to send data 
into Sparkplug systems, but also receive data from Sparkplug systems. So you also get into um, this, uh, the systems you already have because nothing is a greenfield project in an industrial setting. I've seen it. Oh yeah, interesting. I'm gonna just need to get your opinion on this. Uh, so you mentioned like uh, the, the the existing protocols in in industry and and also knowing our our industry, the manufacturing industry, they tend to be quite resistant, you know, to 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 change. So given all these uh, advantages that Sparkplug brings to the manufacturing sector. What's your opinion uh, as to the, the, the rate of adoption? Do you think uh, the industry is going to warm up to, to, to that and start to adopt more of Sparkplug with MTTT? Uh, what's your opinion on that? So <clears throat> actually, I am extremely surprised how fast the adoption of Sparkplug is. Given the, given the inception of Sparkplug, I mean, this is brand new. And um, so we are talking to, my company is talking to so many Fortune 500 companies right now who are looking to modernizing um, Sparkplug. And also because the, the promises, um, especially the OPC UA projects over the years, the, all the promises about interoperability sometimes didn't come into fruition. Um, and also people, we now see the convergence of OT and IT. And while there's still a culture clash um, you, you very often see in, in a lot of um, companies also, um, people really need real-time data, real-time insights um, from devices in the cloud. So and basically you have this, you, you want to have this data mesh um, instead of, of course you have this, this, um, this operations pyramid you, you have, but this needs to break, you need to break this up. And also OPC UA, really the vision is to, to break up basically the pyramid and so you get this interoperability. But on the other side, you also have all these IT systems, you have microservices, all these approaches and this agility, agility going, um, going on here. And people really want to bring this also into the factories, like things like continuous deployment is something I would have never thought um, to talk about um, companies in the manufacturing sector like years ago are now talking about these IT concepts because agility is a new competitive advantage. And so there are, there are so many business drivers uh, basically supporting the Sparkplug story. And this is why we see that the adoption is actually much greater than we anticipated in the beginning, um, which, which is interesting because Sparkplug is really new from a concept here. And it's like, it's the exact opposite concept you usually find in factories and people are really buying into that because of their simplicity. Now, there's, there's, there's one question that came up uh, uh, on, I, I can't, I'm not sure whether it was in a forum or it was one of my videos where by someone was asking to say, suppose you're in a Sparkplug uh, B network and you've got a new HMI that just joins the the, 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 the network and yep. a, a device has already published its debate. How yep. does a, a Hive MQ broker cater for that? How, how does that new HMI then know, become aware of, 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 of all the existing connections that are currently there? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a good question, actually a very, very deep, deep question here. So um I think for for the listeners, um I'm not aware of, of that Sparkler works this way that a, a new if if a new um, device joins the Sparkler communication, it issues a so-called birth certificate. So the SCADA system or the, the primary host or IIoT host, how it's called in Sparkplug, um, knows who this is. 
So um, usually, usually it's, it's a SCADA system, but Sparkplug also has a mechanism built into um, that is called rebirth. So in, let's say this is usually the case if you want to bring a new HMI system, for example, which is your use case, um, and you want to to see the data because I need to mention that the dbirth um, message, which is the dbirth certificate, um, contains all all the metrics, all the tags um, that can be, be sent by a specific device. And um, so, so that the usual way is really to issue dbirth. So, so the broker doesn't need to do anything. This is really just standard MQTT. So it could also do it with other brokers and issue dbirth. Um, HiveMQ with the extension system has also capabilities that HiveMQ could do this for the HMI system if the HMI system, let's say, would not uh, be as sophisticated to issue rebirths and so on. Um, so this can be done on the broker side, um, but usually just from a Sparkle perspective, uh, you could do this without any, let's say, broker magic. This could be plain MQDT. Um, sometimes it's easier from an administrative standpoint to, to do that with the broker. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting to know. So now, uh... You mentioned that the, 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 the MQTT plus uh, Sparkplug B uh, uh, network uh, is, is, is centered around a, a broker. So now, mm -hmm. as far as the deployment of that broker is concerned, what are the different options? Where uh, uh, can be able to deploy the broker? And uh, mm -hmm. what are the pros and cons of each deployment uh, uh, mm -hmm. approach? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. So, um, I think it depends a bit on the use case. Let's let's stay in the manufacturing, as sorry, on the industrial automation side. Um, here, you usually you really want to have an edge broker, because latencies are key, um, and you really want to also be very predictable from a latency perspective. Um, so, what you usually have, you have um, an MQTT broker installation, um, usually one, sometimes more. It really depends. Um, locally, so basically on the edge. And this is where you, where you connect all your gateways, this is where you connect sometimes PLCs directly. There are a lot of PLCs who support Sparkplug, for example, directly. Um, for example, Avago recently announced one. Um, and so, and you really need a broker locally. And then you have this data exchange here. So all applications um, and uh, basically all gateways and all Sparkplug participants can, can be locally. But what you usually also want is um, a cloud communication. So especially for use cases where you have more than, let's say, one factory uh, you, you want to connect, you also need a deployment in the cloud. And here the options are um, usually uh, MQDT compliant broker is used. So um, there are open source options or um, also from HiveMQ, there are options here. So you could either, let's say, just use it as a service. So there are options like HiveMQ Cloud, which you can just deploy in the cloud, click and, and you have it, or you deploy it yourself in your own data center. And this really depends on the company. Some companies really like to rent it. Some companies like to operate it themselves. And, and what, you, what you usually have is you have this tiered approach. So you have brokers locally on the factories and then you also have one broker in the cloud, which you bridge data to, because sometimes you want to, to bring all data to the cloud, but sometimes you also only want to select specific data streams, which are important. So for example, if there's an alert, um, which you want to bring to the cloud, while, while probably um, some, some tech updates, which are not interesting at all, um, you don't want to pull into a cloud. But 
and this is the great thing, also bidirectionally. So you can then also control, let's say, do control actions on the cloud side, which you can bring then back to your shop floor. So this is possible and MQT supports it out of the box. And if MQT supports it out of the box, also Sparkplug supports it out of the box. So uh -huh. there's one, one word of caution here. Um, so there are some providers um, which, depending on what you want to do, so if you uh, don't care about vendor login, so for example, Microsoft also has IoT Hub, um, AWS has their IoT um, offering also. Um, but be aware, these are not MQTT compliant brokers. So um, they, they do provide an MQT interface, but you cannot use it as a general purpose broker. So um, this is something um, we've seen a lot of companies um, yeah, basically ha have experience with where they needed to migrate to a compliant broker. So if you don't need the MQT compliance, um, you can also get this or you get a, a fully MQT compliant broker. Oh, okay, interesting. Another uh, uh, interesting uh, concept that I, I, I want to talk to you about is that of um, uh, using Kubernetes. I know you, you, you guys at your company you also offer that. I want to understand yeah. what's, what's the relationship between Kubernetes and MQTT brokers? What's, how yeah. does it work? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question because um, what, what I told about MQTT brokers is um, there is one MQTT broker. Um, but the problem here is that um, if the one MQT broker would fail for some reason, let's say there's a hardware issue, the server breaks down um, or whatever, this would mean the whole communication is over. So, and this is a huge problem. So what you usually want is you want to have high availability because otherwise you have the central point, uh, the single point of failure and you really don't want to have that. So, so what you do is you usually cluster a broker um, and there are open source brokers supporting that or also commercial brokers supporting that where you can cluster them. And then if, let's say, you have a three node cluster, if one part, let's in on three servers, if one server is going down, you still have two additional servers which take over the operations and nothing, nothing happens. So no, no data loss and so on and everything can operate normally. Um, the thing here is, um, especially on the, in the IT world, Kubernetes as a um, um, orchestrator of, of uh, containers is extremely popular. Why? Because scaling is so easy. And um, I said MQT is very scalable, and this is true, but only if the uh, broker supports that. So for example, um, our technology, uh, HyphenQ is used in scenarios where you can have up to 10 million concurrent connections at the same time which um, is, is, is a lot. So, so large car fleets um, of, of the largest vendors in the world um, have these numbers. Um, if, if you're in these kind of settings, you really want to make sure that you have this auto-scaling approach where you can, if you have more load, you, you can add brokers as needed um, because MQT scales with the capacities of the broker. And if you have a broker who supports elastic scaling, like HyphenQ, you can just add nodes as needed and then start with a three node cluster and then have a seven node cluster, 10 node cluster as needed if your use case grows. This is not so relevant for, for, um, for industrial automation settings actually, because usually it's, it, it, I mean, it doesn't happen that overnight you get like yeah. thousands of new MQT connections, um, but still, People are running um, in their factories. We see this now on the edge. They run um, Kubernetes, they run um, OpenShift and so on. Why? Because 
this is also part of the, the agility people want to bring into the deployment process. They can roll out new software, um, roll out their applications. And the awesome thing is you can also roll out your brokers with that. So this basically um, lessens the burden on the administrative, um, um, yeah, for the administrator folks. Because basically you, you just do a, 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 open your terminal, do a commit, update the software, roll it out, and then you're good to go. And we support all these things like rolling upgrades, zero downtime upgrades, and so on. Because our customers, they, they run 24-7. They cannot, they, they need 100% availability. You just cannot go offline for an update. And this is why Kubernetes is useful, because the operators um, are having a good time with the, these kind of technologies. That's interesting. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to, to developing the, the, the backend software that uh, uh, consumes this uh, MQTT or Spark Plug B uh, information, what, what options or, or tools are available to help uh, 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 companies build backend uh, software that are able to, to consume all of this information? You also mentioned auto discovery. Uh, mm -hmm. What sort of mechanisms or tools or platforms are available to help uh, uh, developers build these uh, backend software that, that, that can consume all of this information? Yeah, so um, this is a, there are really a lot of ways to look at it, but for me, I think it's more about the characteristics, what, what you, you want to get out of it. And in today's world, what you usually want is you want to start small and then scale up the use case as needed and be, be, have this flexibility and agility here. So um, what you usually start with is to decide, okay, do I want to run, let's say, on my bare metal server, um, which is nowadays not the approach you usually get recommended. Um, you usually want to start in the cloud, have a container orchestrator like Kubernetes, and then run your applications on that because then you really have your, your runtime platform where you can add all these pieces uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about as you need. And if you feel, oh, this don't fit me anymore, um, you can change it um, to another technologies. And what is important here, the, the, half, the half time of these kind of uh, technologies is pretty short nowadays. So, so you cannot design a cloud backend that will run for, let's say, 30 years from now on. Just, I mean, even three years is sometimes a stretch because technology is moving so fast on the IT side. Um, but what you usually have is um, you have a, a, stream, a stream processing problem, right? So if you, let's say, an, you have an MQT broker, which receives data from a lot of devices uh, in the field, then you usually... Um, want to have it in some uh, stream engine. So for example, Apache Kafka is something you see in most architectures today. And MQTT and Kafka works beautifully together. And you usually, um, MQTT programs like HiveMQ have a Kafka integration where you can stream the relevant messages directly to Kafka um, because Kafka is really use, useful for the, the application domains. While MQTT is also sometimes used for applications directly to consume data, um, the popular approach is to stream it into Kafka and applications work from there. Um, and as soon as you have all the data in Kafka, um, what you usually want to do is you, uh, depending on the use case, you either want your own applications like microservices, um, pick that up, or you're using some, very often some big data frameworks. Um, so in the past, people used, um, let's say the Apache Hadoop stack a lot, also uh, um, Apache Spark. Um, it's pretty popular also with the Databricks platform if um, companies already have that. Um, in order to 
to work here and, and actually get meaningful answers to, to questions data scientists asks or, or uh, basically application needs are and end user needs are. Um, in the end, you want to have the data somewhere. Usually you have this kind of, of, of data lake. Um, sometimes a data warehouse, it depends on the scale you're, you're doing, but usually today in the cloud, you just pump it into a data lake. And um, if you can, you can enrich it with data already. Um, or you just pump it around to a data lake and then work from there later on as soon as, as you, you want to do something with the data. If you have a defined use case, um, like you have a, a, business, a business use case, you usually just get the data off Kafka and do something and also work with traditional databases. So this, this really depends. But what, what we would recommend is, especially if you don't know what you would do with the data and, and you don't have all the use cases um, uh, fleshed out yet. It doesn't hurt to bring it to a, to a cold storage, to a data lake. Um, and then because storage is so cheap nowadays and it's getting cheaper and cheaper, and then you can use it later on. And by the way, what we also see a lot is for um, industrial automation settings, um, the time series databases are a huge topic. And sometimes you, you directly stream MQT messages to time series databases like InfluxDB, for example, which we've also seen uh, in a lot of settings. So uh, you see there are a lot of components um, here. And um, actually, this, this really depends on, but I would yeah. say start with cloud. And what I would also urge people to, while um, there are some cloud vendors who have some services um, which you can just use, the problem here is you can get started, but if your use case changes, it's pretty hard to get from that login away. So, so the, the best companies we, we've seen um, who were, had the most adaptability, they were able to use best of breed, sometimes open source software, and then they can, their use cases can grow. Because actually with IoT is so, so amazing because um, the use cases grow over time. And all the successful IoT projects we've seen has started small and then a lot of use cases were stacked on top and nobody, nobody thought what would be possible in the beginning of the project and what yeah. is actually possible after it. So flexibility is key um, on the cloud side but also from device to to cloud. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, it's 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 about the good architectural design practices to make your your system as 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 flexible as possible, as as as, as decoupled as possible, and also as portable as possible, so that you yes. can easily move it in between yes. some, some some cloud platforms. Yeah. yeah yes, because this 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 allows for for the speed for speed of development and and actually speed is the is the main competitive advantage um, of of today's companies. So now, well, talking about uh, communication is not enough, really, without uh, mentioning the aspect of, of of security, particularly in the industrial uh, IoT uh, space, where where like. Uh, uh, any uh, security uh, compromises can really be detrimental, even causing yeah. uh, death, you know. So what I want to find out is as far as MQTT is concerned, what are the fundamentals that one needs to get right just to make sure that we've got enough security that you, you know you're covered in that respect? Yeah. So um, there, there are not a lot of things that you need to know about security, but 
please, please, please always use encrypted communication. And this is independent of MQTT. Always use TLS or similar technologies, um, even locally, even if you think you don't need it. Um, so uh, I think you said, so here in, so here in Germany, we've seen a lot of um, yeah, factories basically um, going out of, of, of business for, for some days or even weeks because they got hacked. And this is completely unnecessary. Um, cloud communication always, always, always needs to be encrypted. And there is really no way around that because this is, this is number one. So when you're talking about MQTT, so what is, what is the great thing about MQTT in general is the attack vectors are much smaller than with technologies like CoAP, for example. Why? Because um, a device never is accessible from the outside. So if you have a MQTT device, and let's do a car example, let's say you have a car which supports MQTT. There is no way from the internet to access that car or even let's say probe the car, pull that car and see if the port is open or so, technically speaking. Why? Because there is no server here. MQTT works this way. It, it knows the broker address and it opens a secure communication to the broker. So there's really no attack vector here um, and also no denial of service vector, which is very, very, a very underrated thing because um, we have seen denial of service attacks with HTTP servers on, on washing machines here in Germany. There's a popular vendor who, who had a problem here with that. Um, even if there's no security problem here, just if you have a server open, people can do a denial of service attack from the internet. So with MQTT, you cannot do that um, because the client always opens the connection, which is, I think great from a security perspective. And then again, use TLS if you can, um, client certificate authentication. Um, but even if you cannot, um, also make sure that you use some kind of credentials. Um, sometimes it's just plain using a password, which is um, not that sophisticated, but uh, it's, it's still okay. Um, or you can use more sophisticated technologies like OAuth. We see a lot OAuth 2.0. Um, is used a lot with MQT together because this really fits fits well. Um, the second thing is to to know about MQTT that each device needs to be unique. And you, what you really want to make sure is that on the ones that you don't uh, let anybody into your broker who is not allowed to, and on the other side is even if the, an attacker is inside, uh, let's say your, your deployment, uh, could get could get your username or password that they cannot send arbitrary data, they cannot uh, subscribe to any data and, and do not harm anything. And so you need authentication, which is basically username and password and authorization, which is permissions. So you really want to have policy files. So if you, let's say, have a machine uh, and you know it publishes these five tags, then have a policy that only these five tags can be published and they are not able to publish a tag from the other machine. Um, on um, somewhere else. So, and for that, you need authentication. And so just to stress that again, in order to, you need, you need a secure channel so you can do authentication and you need authentication so you can do authorization. And if you, if you nail that, and this is really, it's actually easy. This is very, very, very easy. And if you just have that, you have a very secure system if you want to go really like um, a gold standard, you also want to make sure that you're validating payloads, you're making sure data compatibility is happening. But this is something commercial brokers like Hiving you can do. Um, but this is really, if you 
want to be top notch. Okay, that's interesting. Now, uh, do you have perhaps like a, a, a use case in, in 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 smart manufacturing for for MQTT that you can share with the with the audience just to give perspective to the whole use case of of, of MQTT and Spark Plug B? Yeah, so there there are a lot of of use cases here. So um, on on the one side, we have uh, case studies here on our website um, on hivenq.com. Um, but yeah, so, so we have different. So for example, one I can share, which is, let's say more, an, uh, it's an exotic one, but an interesting one, I think, because this is um, in production since a few years, is uh, with a, a German car manufacturer, Daimler. And they, um, they use MQTT actually for making sure for the quality control. So basically that, that um, the, as soon as a car basically is finished, that, that all components inside the car work together nicely. And so it's used for quality control. So so um, MQTT is used to, to gather all the information and then to bring this to, to their quality control system. So this is a, an interesting use case, I guess. Um, when it comes to Sparkplug, there are some, this is not, not our use case, but this is a public, this is something uh, Chevron shared, for example. So um, Chevron also talked um, in, a, in a webinar about how they Sparkplug transformed actually how they, th they think about data, how data is, is uh, basically sent and received and how also silos are broken down with that. And um, yeah, so, so oil and gas is doing a lot of spark plug, but also when it comes to smart manufacturing, a lot of people um, are looking into spark plug. Um, it might be, this might be a nuance, but sometimes, especially in smart manufacturing, you don't always have a SCADA system. This might be a bit of a, a nuance. Some, sometimes you have it, sometimes not. And in case you do not have a SCADA system, sometimes MQTT directly is, is used. And we have also um, a lot of Fortune 500 companies who do plain MQTT on the shop floor because they, they do not have, um, they do not need a SCADA system actually. And, but, but this is not, not a Sparkplug story I can share. Mm. And, but we have case studies for that on, on the website, what other companies are doing with plain MQTT. Um, I would actually um, today, I would absolutely um, recommend to take a look at Sparkplug because before developing your own specification, it might it makes sense to to bet on an open specification actually. And now we live in a in a world where even PLCs support MQTT natively. Uh, most PLCs on, on on the market now support MQTT natively, um, and it's just a matter of time until um, everybody supports Sparkplug, and a lot of PLC vendors also um, started to support Sparkplug. And we, we also started actually um, a Sparkplug landscape um, on our website, so um, which which is the goal also to bring together all the Sparkplug vendors um, in order and also make it easier for customers to understand what are the options on the market. And this is really growing literally on a on a weekly basis. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. Okay, so now uh, to close the session off. Um, could you tell us a bit more about uh, HiveMQ, uh, the company, and uh, also just give us a, 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 a description of the kind of products and, and services that you offer? Yeah, sure. So um, HiveMQ is a company um, based here in Germany, and we are building a software for the, uh, for the central nervous system of the Internet of Things. So mainly our main product we are known for is the HiveMQ MQDT platform, which is a platform that is a, basically a broker with um, high availability, extreme scalability, 
Um, we're talking about um, 10 million um, devices and plus for a single deployment um, and enterprise security. So this is really built for mission critical use cases. And this is our, our flagship product. So it has it offers 100% of the MQTT standard, um, MQTT3, MQTT5, and all MQTT standards to come since um, I, I personally am also involved with the specification of MQTT. And, and it's important for us really to be a first mover in the market. And um, yes, and, and we help we help uh, customers worldwide. So, so we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies, um, most of the um, North American and, um, and uh, European car manufacturers are using our software for different use cases, be it Industry 4.0 here in Germany, uh, smart manufacturing, um, connected car. Um, and we help, we help um, our, yeah, basically our customers building new digital products, um, connecting the factories and basically connecting the internet of things. And we also have other products like um, Hyphen Swarm, which we, um, which we recently um, announced, which is also a low test tool for IoT. Um, so, so people are now finally in a position to test their use cases with actual data instead of going to production and get surprised that nothing works. And yes, and, and by the way, um, Hyphen is also open source. So um, this is also for people who can start it free of charge. We have an MQTT library um, also, which is uh, used a lot. We developed together with BMW also here in Germany um, in order to solve <clears throat> the problem to have a high quality MQTT open source software people can just use. And we also, our MQTT broker engine is also um, open source and um, it's also used especially in proof of concepts or for some non-mission critical um, industry 4.0 use cases, while the mission critical stuff usually um, also wants our um, world-class 24-7 support. Oh, okay. Awesome stuff. Okay, Dominic, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you, Kutzai. Thank you for having me.